Hey y'all, I'm back from my granddad's funeral. I needed a minute to just be with my family. But now I'm back with an episode that's a little different than most of them. One, it's specifically focused on my hometown, Detroit. We're looking at the history of Detroit through the way that both indigenous and black Detroiters have experienced dispossession. The other reason why it's a little bit different is that it's, it's, it's a little more chaotic than a normal episode. And that's because the book that we're talking about this episode, City of Dispossessions, Indigenous Peoples, African Americans, and the Creation of Modern Detroit by Professor Kyle Mays, who's my guest today. He's from UCLA. That book hadn't come out yet when I did this episode. <laughs> it's out now if you want it. So I really didn't know a whole lot of what was in the book to ask him about. So this one's it's going to feel a little different, a little more conversational, a little directionless. But I don't know. If y'all like it, let me know. All right, let's get into it. I know the theme of your book is like dispossession. That's mm-hmm. you look at the history of Detroit through both kind of the idea of dispossession and the intersecting histories of indigenous and black people. So I guess the best thing I can do is say, let's just start at the beginning of the story. Yeah. So um, I'll start, I'll start a little bit of family history. So my great grandmother, Esther Shabu's Mays came to Detroit in the spring of 1940 and she was 16 years old. And we're not really sure why she came to Detroit from the reservation. It kind of, she never really talked about it as far as I know. And so we have all these wild speculations as to why, but they're all completely speculations. So have nothing much to say more than that. But we do know shortly thereafter, she married my great grandfather, who's African-American. And she ended up producing these nine Afro-Indigenous children. And there were probably only a few other Afro-Indigenous children in the city from, you know, say from the 1940s up until probably the early 1960s. And she became a well-respected elder in the city of Detroit, co-founding what was called Detroit's Indian Education and Cultural Center. And she was deeply involved in education for indigenous children in the city of Detroit. And her daughter, Maya Judy, founded what was the third ever public school with a Native American curriculum called Medicine Bear American Indian Academy in the 1990s. And so they were deeply invested in issues around Native education and especially for Afro-Indigenous youth, you know, because Detroit was at least a predominantly black city for a long time, at least during their lifetime. So that's kind of how that really began. And so I say all that to say, when I'm talking about dispossession, I mean both the physical removal, the longer history of dispossession when French people began to colonize it in 1701. And then it sort of shifted into... Michigan being a slave state for a short period of time and also a place of, we'll say, refuge, although deeply anti-black. I don't, I think some people mischaracterize that sometimes. So my major question is, how do we talk about both the longer history of dispossession and thinking about current events in Detroit? It's to me what's happening, you know, since the bankruptcy and certainly before then, it's a longer history of dispossession, really that began with Native peoples and continues to impact African-American communities as well in the city. And so I begin with that earlier history 
and then sort of end with this longer history. So dispossession meaning the removal of people, but also the narratives and discourses as a precondition for removing people. For instance, these people cannot govern. It's sort of a common discourse of Detroit as a precondition to dispossess people of rights of citizenship and belonging in the city. It's a long-winded answer, but it's kind of both a mix of family history and my approach to and why I use dispossession. Book projects that start as family histories and then expand to wider histories are always some of the best ones because like those are the ones people are most passionate about and so it's just interesting to have that personal thread through it so i guess i just want to start like pulling at that thread of dispossession like from the beginning yeah so and i like to distinguish between settler colonialism which is often what is used it's just saying how native people were removed from land or as patrick wolf would say it's a structure not an event, something, it's an ongoing thing that continues to happen. But what's often left out of that discussion are urban spaces. Although the majority of Native people today, at least since the 1980s, live in cities, not on reservation, but in cities. But often discussion of settler colonialism ignores how those same logics or approaches impact other people, including African-American. And so how can we look at the removal Uh, dispossession of people in a predominantly black space like Detroit is. How is Detroit's identity constructed, at least modern Detroit? So one of the things I do in the book, I use the the history of the Pontiac brand, right? So, you know, it stopped production in 2009, but it was a major part of Detroit's identity and culture from the early 20th century up until it stopped production. Right. And so you have in the 1920s, these like chief heads. And so it's named after the Odawa war chief Pontiac, who tried to take over or reclaim for Detroit from the British in May of 1763. But it also ties into issues around factories, race relations, and again, the cultural and political and economic identity of the city. But they utilize this trope, this stereotype of the War Chief Pontiac, so white men can not only make money or capitalism, but to say, look, we've conquered our native peoples and now we can construct our own identity as a city through this longer history of dispossession because in their minds, they had finally conquered the native, so to speak. And so once you feel like you've conquered native peoples, you can then create memorializations of them. And those things exist one to the present. For instance, I was at, um, I guess I won't name the coffee shop, but it's at a coffee shop on Woodward Avenue. You know, good coffee, nice and hipster vibe. They also have wine, too. I think you know where I'm going with this. And so I remember asking for the, this must have been um, 2012 or 13. I remember asking for the password for the, for the Wi-Fi, and they said it was Marvin Gaye. And they were like, do you know how to spell gay? And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, but going what I, where I'm going with this is this larger issue of memorializing Native figures like Pontiac and then Black figures too. And I went, you know, maybe a year later, and it was Rosa Parks was now the new Wi-Fi name. And so what you have here are, you know, white hipsters who will utilize these tropes and names 
to memorialize, even though as they actively benefit from the dispossession of Black residents today and Native residents who still live in the city and the longer uh, history of dispossession in the city. It's, it's just a fascinating thing. I mean, while Detroit's population is declining, you still have white population increasing. I don't know if you remember, but in uh, Bushwick in Brooklyn, there were those signs that said, what was it, just west of Detroit or something like that. But it was encouraging people to move from Brooklyn to Detroit. And it's like this frontier narrative of this place is rape or settlement. It's a place that you can easily live. It's cheap. But it's like it's divorced from the people who actually live there, right? And so to me, that is a continuation of this longer history of dispossession. And I'm blending purposely the sort of time, both historically and today, because I see the same sort of logic and patterns persisting and continuing well into the present. And it's, it's, again, these wealthy white men who create these narratives and then People who are not wealthy, but mostly white, continue in the pattern of settlement. So they're still benefiting from these discourses and narratives of dispossession. Yeah. So they call Detroit, I hear a lot, like Detroit as like the comeback city. But then when I go through Detroit, I'm like coming back like this. Like this does not look like it used to. Like, I guess that's part of the dispossession is it's not black people coming back. It, they're being pushed out. And this comeback is very largely that white hipster population you were just talking about. Yeah. And you know this. So like, it's just like the downtown area, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you change the name from Cas corridor to whatever the hell it's called now. <laughs> um, it, that's a whole part of when you settle, right. You, you literally change the name of a place. I mean, and this is not unique to Detroit in that sense. This is happening in different urban residents. I think parts of, LA or now like South LA versus what it was even historically, you know, it's a historically black area, but you have a lot of white people moving in right now. And those housing prices are now skyrocketing. I mean, that's another part of the, the, the disposition. Change the name, push those, you price those people out. And then those home prices kind of skyrocket, which makes it unlivable for working class, hell, even middle-class people. You can't afford to buy that. Yeah, I do. I see it all the time. So memorialization is definitely a big part of your book. Do you talk about this? I like read an article about it. I don't even know if the book addresses it or not. But apparently a lot of the street names, like the French ones in Detroit, are named after slave owners. Do you get into that at all? I do not get into that. But that is so what I do get into is the fact that the whole sort of street system are based on native trails. Really? So Woodward Avenue to Cass Avenue and so forth, they're all based on these old native trails hmm. that the French just kind of overlaid. And then the city has since just kind of kept over. But it does demonstrate how those settlers would not have survived without native understandings of geography. It literally would not have survived those French, the French folks that came in. <laughs> They literally had to survive uh, early on without the assistance and help from a variety of Native nations in the 18th century anyways. So they continued to need to rely on Native peoples in some way as a foil, the geography that they create, and so forth. So, yes, 
It's fascinating. Yeah, and, and then they, you know, after a lot of slave owners too. I didn't talk about that in the book, but that is a interesting uh, history. Yeah, my cousin like once sent me an article that was like all these French names. These were French slave owners. Yeah, colonizers and slave owners—they go hand in hand. Wow, but I did not know that that the streets are based off native trails. Wow. You know, whether you're going I-94, you know, to Chicago, I mean, it's it's still, that's a particular trail that Native people had used for for centuries to, to travel because, you know, they were not immobile prior to colonization, for sure. What else is in your book? Uh, what else is in this book? Um, I think one of the more fascinating things is talking about the school and the history of both Afrocentric education in Detroit and the development of the school that my aunt founded. So, you know, of course, there's the longer history of black education in Detroit, starting especially with the Nation of Islam in the 1930s. And that influenced black education, independent education, I should say, really, certainly onward. And by the 1980s with the Afrocentric educational movement, Native educators, at least since the 70s, had been advocating for a native school. And so by the late eighties, when they're kind of putting this in motion in the early nineties, it made sense to black council people and so forth, because they were like, you know, we're, we support various forms of nationalism and we support American Indians during that time. So like, let's support this particular school. And so it was, you know, by the, at least the, the school board and so forth, very much supported by a, a black Detroit, which, Given the history I know about how easily some black folks can erase Native people, it's it's pretty remarkable that they were in such support because it could have easily fallen into, you know, we don't have enough resources and so forth. But uh, it was something that I think they understood as communities should have control over their own schooling. And so I think that made sense for them. And they were very much in support of uh, this all indigenous educational institution, which benefited because Canada is so close. You have First Nations. So you have a lot of kids who were maybe they're indigenous from the U.S., First Nations from Canada, Afro-Indigenous youth and people who are multi-tribal. And so they had a lot to kind of contend with. (laughs) It's probably unique from other municipalities as far as like children's population around issues around race and so forth. And so I was just at a, um, just stopped in to say hi to this, the American Indian Health Family Services in Detroit, some kind of board meeting that they had. And I just introduced myself and, and people are like, oh, I remember Judy, my Aunt Judy. And someone's like, I remember going to the school. And so that's always kind of cool to hear, but, you know, and then she was fired in 2000 with the, accusation of nepotism because her sister had worked at another um, entity around Indian education. My family had been involved in Indian education for a long time in Detroit. But I think the subtext of that is less so the firing for nepotism and more so the, you know, Detroit schools get taken over in 1999. She's fired in 2000. So they're trying to find ways, where can we cut things that don't belong because she had been advocating for another building because they were at the historic Fort Wayne. And so native education is a pretty easy thing to cut. I'm just thinking from the capitalists and people taking over because 
it's not significant, it's a drain on our limited resources and so forth. Let's just cut that. And so her firing was really a pretext for someone who had been deeply involved in Native education since the 70s to sort of cut the head, so to speak, in order to really cut financial ties with something that they did not want to deal with, which was something they did promise a kind of a building for expanding Native education. So it's just a part of that whole takeover in the city of Detroit, which began with the school board takeover. And that's another connection right there. Back in the 90s, Detroit had more Afrocentric schools than anywhere else in the country, like almost 20. And now there are only three. Yeah, I mean, and, um, and you know, I might have some qualms with Afrocentric theory, like long term, but it's very valuable as far as I know for young people mm-hmm. as a real counter to Eurocentric education. I mean, I would it, it would suck, but it'd be fascinating to see this in the context of discussion around critical race theory today. <laughs> the Malcolm X Academy was called back in the day. They didn't like that in the 90s because, I mean, I don't know, Malcolm X, they were saying advocated the killing of white people or something crazy. I'm like, did I, did I ever read this stuff or listen to his speeches? I think some of this is out of context. Yeah, it always is. I guess I kind of want to learn more just about, like, indigenous education what did these schools look like they started off first through third grade and they wanted to expand to eighth grade and that was a long-term goal and so it was designed for at least 55 percent native children and it was a public school detroit public school so they they wanted it to be at least 55 percent native children and it was a all indigenous curriculum so they had um kind of elders in the school and it's something they had been doing since since at least 1974. So the elders in the school, who also served as counselors, learning about Native history in the state of Michigan. And, you know, in addition to the sort of core state of Michigan requirements as well, but also cultural things around beating, different cultural activities. And so the curriculum was kind of more holistic in its approach to teaching. And it was a smaller population. so And parents, right before it was formed, were enthusiastic about sending their kids to school because it was a long history of racist curriculum. I mean, that's across the board, right, in, in Detroit Public Schools. But they have been fighting to get certain things removed around racist, uh, using the, the word like squaw in the textbook for decades. And so they had thought this was a fantastic idea to have a school like this. And just even interviews I did with kind of former students who are now adults, and they said it was kind of profound for them being around other Native youth and their own identity development and having just a safe space to either be Indigenous or, or sort of even multiracial. And for like the Afro-Indigenous kids, it was helpful that for them that my auntie was herself Afro-Indigenous because they found someone that they could relate to, talk with, in sort of like a leadership role. It was very profound for them, I think. When you're written out of the school curriculum, it's kind of always valuable to have to be put back in it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I remember talking to someone, they just said there's like this large kind of bear <laughs> type thing with like just like different forms of Anishinaabe regalia or something on it. 
they said it like scared the hell out of him as a kid, but it was always like native stuff around, like posters of people beating and and they were telling me it's just kind of a something you that's instilled in your head, but as a kid you don't quite realize it and how profound it is just to see those different cultural artifacts around you. Wow. The time that your great grandma came to Detroit, there were actually like a lot of other Native American like there was an influx around that time. This is kind of right before, but then shortly thereafter, World War II. And there was a period of uh, termination relocation. So there are different factories are inviting Native peoples to come to cities to work, just like they're inviting African-Americans to come and work, you know, make more money. And, and other people hear about this and they're like, you know, we can make a better living for ourselves and so forth. And so they go to really to work in the factories. But then after World War II, the United States is seeking other trying to help rebuild Europe with the Marshall Plan. They're seeking to cut funds within the U.S. And so one way they try to do this is through termination or relocation. A few acts um, in the 1950s to assimilate Native peoples and also terminating certain tribal nations. Uh, perhaps the most famous one was the Menominee tribe who I believe regained their status, um, I think in the 70s, 70s or 80s. The United Wait, States. You, you say terminate, you mean you're just like, you're not a tribe anymore? Yes. They cut off their funding or treaty obligations with them and so forth, which is wild. Yeah, what? <laughs> the United States has violated every treaty that ever made of Native nations. So in that larger context, not surprised. Yes, it's not surprising. It's just like, <laughs> you don't exist anymore. Sorry. Yeah, that, that's what settler states do. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so you have an influx of Native peoples. And so they began to form organizations. One of the longest running ones in the country was called the North American Indian Club, formed in 1937 in Detroit. But then it became the North American Indian Association, which is, as far as I know, still an operation in some capacity. And at least within the last few years. And they were just there. You had Native people come into cities. Let's you know, make sure they have some people they know, social. And then they began to be more kind of political, protesting issues around mascots, you know, having a place for Native people to socialize. So those things were important for Native people in a post-World War II era when, you know, it's becoming a predominantly Black city, white people are leaving and so forth. And so even... Within the political arena, they always often felt like a minority of minorities, which is odd. They lived mostly in Cavs Corridor downtown, where a lot of poor working class unhoused people also lived in the 1960s through the 1980s. You have the like educational through line from like that period to kind of to more recently. Anything else you, that connects those two periods? Okay, so like Detroit was majority white, which I didn't even realize. That's like bizarre to think about. It's been majority black most of my family's history. <laughs> and then there was an influx and then it became majority black with a pretty sizable indigenous population. Then there's now. I'm just trying to figure out the through lines. Yeah, and now it's fascinating. You know, like the water shutoffs that have and continue to kind of be an issue or the Flint water crisis and you, you still have Native activists, whether it's Sacramento Knox or Southie, uh, other folks, Chrissy B, 
who are native activists had some connection with my auntie's school, but they're also deeply invested in sort of black and indigenous solidarity. So I know Sacramento Knox has been doing this for years, but um, he'd have like kind of jam sessions in Clark Park, but also educating youth. So whether it's black, indigenous, Latinx youth, and organizing as well, putting on workshops for youth and so forth, really to kind of bridge and create forms of solidarity through hip hop culture as one avenue. So you kind of still see this, people trying to create these bridges and connections through pop culture, particularly through hip hop. And it's been incredible to kind of witness and hear about those particular stories as well. Some of these probably been doing for like 15 years now. So I think there are some avenues, but it's still not enough to thwart the larger structural and political issues happening in the city and the continued influx of white people coming into Detroit to live their dream or, you know, whatever in the hell that they're trying to do. It's sad to see. And, and on the other hand, without an improvement to the school districts and people seeking better educational opportunities and so forth. And again, this is a product of racial capitalism and, and government policies to make the school district as such. It's not by accident. But if you're a black parent, like what are your options and where can you go is the other thing that, you know, we can have all the structural analysis that we want, but if you're a black parent, like what are you going to do to educate and make sure your children have safety? Downtown is safe, right? The last time you've been downtown, you you saw saw all the people out there. I was like, Mm -hmm. wow, y'all super safe, huh? (laughs) But that's, you know, again, that's just downtown. Oh, yeah. And the reason why my family moved out of Detroit was it was about the schools. That's the dispossession. And it it sucks. And then a lot of those folks will just, they're still kind of young without family. So I'm curious to see where those white people moving in, like, what's going to happen in the next, like, 10 to 15 years? You know, if they start having children, are they going to create independent schools, more charter schools? Are they going to just, like, all right, let's just leave now. It's time to go. We had our fun. I wonder that all the time. As soon as they start having kids, they're going to run into that same issue. And private school is expensive. <laughs> so. Right. I mean, I'm sure they'll have the money for it, you know, after cashing out their coffee shops and whatever other nonsense they have. And I frequent those places, so it doesn't mean you're right. I mean, <laughs> it's a shame, but I'm, I, you know, I'm a product of yuppie things, too, like good coffee and crappy or fancy wine places or something. So I'm over there hating on these people while also giving them my money whenever I'm in the city. Shameful. Yeah, I know. Okay, we need some more black coffee shops and, and some more craft beer places, and I'm down. Agreed. So you talk about like solidarity, but I want to talk about like the evolution of the relationship because like in the '80s when it was like let's build this school, that was like a cool thing. But was there any tension between the two groups in the city? In the '60s and '70s, kind of at the height of the activism, certainly. I mean, I found. Native people are not immune to living in a white supremacist or anti-black society. And so when you have Native people moving in from reservations, Canada, I have all these stories about they have heard about the blacks. White supremacy circulates everywhere. 
even if you've never met or hung around black people in your life. So they had certain perceptions of African-Americans before then. And then they get there. You know how it goes. One negative experience or whatever, or what you heard, just the whole race is a problem now. It wasn't a case that I've heard. And I've heard after interviewing family members, they understood being Afro-Indigenous. They got called racial epithets by Native peoples. Some black folks will call them Pocahontas, which is a slur, but they were kind of lighthearted about it because they were like, oh, I understand. It's kind of funny, whatever, whatever. Maybe it was hurtful for them back in the day, but they said they didn't have any real issues connecting with black folks, unlike with some Native folks, because there were a lot of uh, Native people, especially Native men, who did not like that my great-grandmother married an African-American man. So this would have been in the 50s the old forties and she was outspoken because some went out very quickly and you know, all those things around gender and race, you know, she didn't know her place, so to speak for them. You can't marry a black man. And also you like to speak your mind. Those are two things as a native woman, I suppose you weren't supposed to do from the 1940s on, but she did it anyways. And her children, you know, they, it was explained to me that if there's a black power rally, they were going to that. When there was the American Indian movement stuff, they were going to that too. Uh, so they were blending, at least for them, both of these kind of worlds and engaged in all forms of activism. But there was certainly tension. And my family, you know, they experienced tension, but they're kind of an exception to being Afro-Indigenous. But I have stories of black folks who tried to attend certain events in solidarity and they didn't feel very welcome. I experienced this too. Like I never have any issues in different native spaces. Like some minor things, but then they're like, oh yeah, I know your family, cool. You're just a regular black person going to this space and I hear all sorts of wild anti-black things. I'm like, wow. I, I ain't see none of that or hear none of that either. So those things certainly persist in the present, but or black people erasing native people. But we're also products of society. And one of the things I would love to see or have is black and native folks just having conversations, multi-journal conversation, learning about each other's histories. And I think one of those radical things that native people, native nations in particular could do is if we want to live in a world in the aftermath of settler colonialism and white supremacy, how can native nations reclaim folks or, or claim new people? What are their protocols for doing that? When you adopt outsiders, what are those? If you don't have them, create some new ones, right? And I think that would be a good way to reject the recognition issues that often happen within tribal nations. They're so invested often in recognition of the permission of the U.S. government. Instead of saying, we're going to be sovereign, so we're going to adopt all these black people into our nations, whatever that means for those these different nations. I would love to see something like that. That would be powerful. Just sovereign, do it. That's interesting. There's something you said that I like meant to ask you about when you said it, but then I kind of forgot. I don't. It's probably not even like a central part of your book, but I definitely just need you to explain. You said something about racial capitalism and the way that schools in Detroit are definitely intentionally underfunded, and just like, just just give me a little bit about that. Yeah, I don't. I don't get into it in my own book. It's mostly the work of one of my good friends and a scholar, A.J. Rice, who's working on how the 
sort of racial capitalism as a kind of a framework, how these different companies, corporations took over the Detroit public schools in order to get money out of it. And the impact, of course, was stripping citizens of rights. And as, as you know, with the 99 takeover is a precursor really to the bankruptcy much later on when the state is able to take over the city and stripping them of rights. And so he's been able to chart a fascinating history of corporations, corporate interests, politicians, and so forth, who were kind of in cahoots in taking over the public schools. And because, you know, the school district at least was the largest landowner in the city. And because the largest landowner, when you have this corporate takeover, they're able to then take over land plots, close down the school building. So it's all a part of, you know, what at least he describes as a kind of a racial capitalist order. Like that's literally like the opposite of community control of schools. <laughs> Far from it. Far from yeah. it. Literally just like whoever has money can do whatever they want with it. Yeah. Which I guess is racial capitalism and why a lot of things are terrible. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Anything else we didn't touch on in the book that we should hit? Or anything else you you just think is really interesting that you want to talk to me about? I think if I if I had a last word, it would it would really be to say what are the ways that the city of Detroit can honor its native history and you know put a focus on contemporary native issues in the city and they're not far divorced from issues facing black people in the city today right and I, I think people kind of forget that native urban residents exist. And it's, it's also putting their voices out on the table and really figuring out what are the things that they could benefit from and what can public policy do to assist Native youth who often still feel very invisible. And that's Detroit, Los Angeles, Chicago, and so forth. It would never happen, but I would love to see like a dedicated space where a building existed for native youth elders to come together, you know, to learn culture, have ceremonies, work with black youth and so forth. That would be cool to see. Yeah. And I guess that all goes back to your memorialization things that if you erase the history, you don't understand, you don't like, cause I didn't know there was so much history of indigenous people in Detroit. And when you don't know the history, you don't think about yeah. it in the present. Yeah. And, and I mean, and that's a part of the, narratives of dispossession. It's to focus solely on those past people that seem like ancient history in order to continue dispossessing and ignoring people in the present. And so it works so well. You don't know the history of Native people of Detroit or really any urban area or hell, contemporary anything, right? I mean, that's the whole whole purpose. I mean, I do this assignment with my uh, students when I teach like an urban um, indigenous history course. And we said the first few weeks, I'm like, research your hometown or a place you identify as home. And, you know, a large portion, but I didn't find anything. And I thought, why do you think that is? Hmm. I'm like, that is the point. You know, you might learn. And then I'll ask them to tell me about the contemporary. And, uh, and I'm like, well, you didn't learn anything because that's a deliberate process of colonialism. So you, you don't know anything about those people. And then we kind of go from there. 
Sounds like a good class. Uh, who knows? We'll see what evaluations say. This is like the second episode I've done that was like Indi- Black Indigenous history. And I feel like the lesson that I take away from both of them is just there's a way that both Black and Indigenous people inhabit the settler state. And anytime we try to divide them as like separate communities having separate struggles, it's just unproductive. We are fighting the same struggle. I agree. And this is why I do the work that I do. But I all it all I'm always reminded by Audre Lorde, who said in the essay Living from the Sixties that really none of us are natural allies. And I like to start there with folks so they can think about it. Like, we're not? And I'm like, no, we're not. <laughs> right? And it's not to say that we don't have the same struggles, because fundamentally, of course, I think long term, yes. But you really have to sit down and think about each other's histories, learn about them. You have to hang out with people and really understand where they're coming from and be slow and deliberate in the process. And it's difficult these days, too, because we're like, all right, we got this action. We did this now. Like, yes, there's this immediate thing we need to do now. But after we do this immediate thing, let's go back. Let's read together, watch the documentaries, movies. Let's have food together and let's like actually figure out. And make sure we know enough about each other's histories and struggles and what our positions are that we can go forward together. Wow. That that feels like a good place to wrap it up. We just need to listen to each other. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking with me. Yes, of course. Anytime. Solidarity. It's not easy, but it is possible. If you like this show, please review it. I feel less like I'm talking to myself when I see nice things written on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. All power to all people, y'all.